And that was how to make the elixir of life and holy grail. Next up. I'm a mortal. Your source for all things immortal. I'm Aisha Musa. I hold a doctorate in Near Eastern Languages and Civilizations from Harvard University with a specialization in Arabic and Islamic studies. My specialty is primarily classical Arabic and Islamic studies, but for this podcast, my most important piece of work would be the chapter I did in Calvin Mercer's book on radical life extension. Uh, which is why you guys invited me to be on this podcast with you. My expertise is classical Arabic, uh, Quranic interpretation, and interpretation of the, uh, the prophetic traditions, the Hadith, that is the stories told about Muhammad. And those are the two primary textual sources of religious law and interpretation. Um, and I focus uh, primarily on the Quran in the chapter on radical life extension, but there are also other literatures that, that I examine, uh, Quranic commentaries by Muslim scholars, again, from the classical period and the formative period, which is roughly the 8th to the 11th centuries of the Common Era, is my primary area of specialization in text. Oh, wow. That's very intense. Could you tell us a little bit about what inspired you to enter the expertise in the field that you're in today? Uh, Arabic and Islamic studies more broadly, I guess you could call it a personal search for truth. Um, <laughs> really, because I, I ran into the Quran as a teenager many years ago. I'd never heard of Islam. Uh, the university where I live here in Portland, Oregon, which is where I grew up and I'm now retired, so I'm back here, had an Arabic program. And so I started taking Arabic and things just kind of grew from there. Uh, and the more I studied, the more I wanted to study. Um, and then I got the opportunity to go to Harvard and, you know, who passes that up, right? <laughs> um, so it really was personal desire for knowledge. Well, this being I'm immortal, well, one question we always have to ask is, what does the word immortal or immortality mean to you? Well, I am primarily um, a linguist at heart. Um, I do philology and linguistics. So when I think about what does a word mean, I think about what does the word mean, right? And immortal means not subject to death, right? Mm. Because the word mortal is a word that means subject to death. And I should have looked up the etymology of it before this because I knew you asked that question. <laughs> um, so immortal means not subject to death, literally. And we'll talk about the difference between, you know, what does it mean to be subject to death is I think a big part of your questions in this podcast. And, and I think the Islamic view might be, a, or at least my understanding based on language, I don't think there is an Arabic word that means not subject to death. The word that is used that's translated as immortal is Khalid. Khalid, sorry, which means existing forever, right? And so there's a difference between being subject to death or not subject to death and, and existing forever or uh, existing for a very long time. And so that's something we can discuss more uh, as we go along with your questions. So if you were given the chance, would you take this opportunity or an opportunity to have immortal life or, I guess, not being subject to death? 
I get okay. Let's talk about then what is life if we see life as this physical existence. And I think, especially when we're talking about the concept of radical life extension, it's talking about life in a physical body on this earth, right? Is that the only conception of life? Because the idea in the Quran is that that the nafs, uh, which means breath, spirit, soul, self, is something that experiences death. Every nafs will taste death, according to the Quran, but the nafs itself doesn't die. The, and this idea of life and afterlife um, is that it's the nafs that's in both. The nafs in the physical body is in the life of this world. So is your question, would I choose to live like forever in the physical life of this world? Is, is, is that what you're thinking when you ask that question, when you say, would you take a chance, you know, would you take the opportunity for immortal, uh, you know, for a life not subject to death or for, or do you mean a life that goes on forever? I think there are two different things, right? What if I asked you both? <laughs> okay, you can ask me both. Yeah. Would I choose to live forever on this planet in a physical body? Uh, the answer that I give today might be quite different than I would have given a number of years ago, given what I see in the world with climate change and the negative things going on. Yeah. And, and I really have thought recently, you know, I don't know if I would want to continue and be immortal in that sense of, of having a life forever in the physical body on this earth, because especially when I look around me, um, I live in a neighborhood now where there's a huge amount of homeless people um, that I go out and I see every day and I get to know them. They're my neighbors on the sidewalk. I, yeah, and, and they're really suffering, right? And, and I see that as, you know, our system has failed people, right? The cost of housing in this area is just so high that a lot of people are on the street, right? And if you're, so do we want this to continue? Um, yeah, I looked around and thought, wow, you know, and then climate change. Portland's never been as hot as it was yesterday. It was incredibly bizarre. And uh, going through those kind of experiences makes me think that the idea of immortality in the way that I think people imagine it in a popular sense is not something I think would necessarily be a good idea. I guess to also add on to that, I mean, of all the things to work on in the world, immortality is kind of bottom of the list i mean or if at all for some people like you talked about shouldn't we be solving climate change first poverty <laughs> right so right I can sort there of see are people that from. are not having children today because right. they're concerned about what the world's going to be like so i think there are a whole lot of other questions that go into what you are asking in your project. But what you're asking in your project is very important though too, because it's about, you know, you're interested in aging, you're interested in, I assume, quality of life for people, right? And, and the idea of extending people's lives. And you sent me a number of questions. And if you want, I can just go through them or you can ask questions uh, based on what we've said now. Well, I guess our first one, I realized we jumped a little bit ahead of track and we probably should have asked you first what it means to be Muslim and what Islam is, because I'm assuming a lot of people listening to this, you might be their very first introduction. So do you mind explaining as for, for someone who's never heard of it, 
um, explaining for, to them what it all is about? Well, uh, somebody who's never heard of it is, is going to come with a different view than people who have heard what's often in the popular media. Islam is an Arabic word, and, and Islam literally as a noun means the act of submission or surrender to the will of God. And so lowercase i Islam, submission or surrender to God. Uh, uppercase I, Islam, the religion that has developed uh, since the time of the Prophet Muhammad in its various denominations as we know it today. And a Muslim is someone who does that action. The word Muslim is an active participle in, Islam, in Arabic. Uh, this is, again, the linguist in me. The one who does that submitting to God. So lowercase m, Muslim, someone who submits or surrenders to the will of God. And uppercase M Muslim, someone who is a member of Islam as it's known in the world today in any of its various denominations. And there are Muslims who consider, you know, who break down into various sectarian lines. Yeah. So this is a question that I've had personally, and I'm sure plenty of other uh, listeners have also had. But the word Allah and God, do they mean the same thing and can they be used interchangeably? Yes, they mean the same thing and they can be used interchangeably. I know there are people who like to say the word Allah refers to a different deity, but the word Allah in Arabic is the word Allah, which is the word meaning like lowercase g God, because Arabic does not have upper and lowercase letters. In English, the way we take a common noun, God with a lowercase g, and make it a proper noun, the name of the deity, G-O-D, capital G, God. Uh, in Arabic, you do that by adding the definite article, the, L. Uh, so, uh, and Al-Illa, because of pronunciation, the I becomes elided, so it becomes Allah, literally means the God, and has the same effect as at capitalizing the G in, in God in English. And so I use them interchangeably. And, and linguistically in, in Arabic, there's no reason not to. Oh, okay. Wow. I, well, we, got, we definitely got a linguist lesson today. Super. Um, <laughs> I can't but, help it. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a yeah. teacher and I like to be very, you know, exact. I like to give people full answers. Well, that's why we have you here for as full answers as we can get. Blame my family. My grandparents were educators. My mother had been a chiropractic doctor before I was born. And so I come from a family who gave full and complete answers and sent you to the library. So (laughs) (laughs) getting getting to our our main topic for today, which is on life extension. I I understand that in the sorry, I might butcher a lot of words today. The Quran right? Yes. There's several characters who live definitely longer than I think the max current lifespan is 120 years living for hundreds of years. I think, for example, Noah was something like 900 and something. How do people how do Muslims interpret these stories? Are they just stories? Or are they something which that they are striving to achieve like that? That it is in fact possible in some way? Uh, well, Muslims generally believe because the Quran is believed by Muslims to be the Arabic Quran. Uh, let me be clear, is believed by Muslims to be the direct and literal words of God that were dictated by the angel Gabriel to the prophet Muhammad. So the Quran is seen by Muslims as absolutely what God said, and, and God always tells the truth. So that story is true. 
And I deal with, in fact, the, the title of that chapter in Calvin's book is A Thousand Years Less 50, because that is how long Noah was said to have been with his people. So he had lived at least 950 years. And so this idea that people could live a long time, uh, Muslim tradition, the traditions attributed to the prophets say that Adam also lived quite a long time. And, and Muslims also take, although the Hadith, because they're passed on by people and not seen as the word of God, they have various levels of authenticity, various levels of reliability. And for stories like this are not taken to be necessarily the exact truth. Uh, whereas the Quran is the exact truth because God spoke it or God ordered Gabriel to dictate it to Muhammad. So, um, so Muslims would believe that this is possible. And the classical commentators on the Quran set for some reason a period of 120 years. I don't recall exactly, I should have gone back and read my chapter because I think I deal with that <laughs> in there, about how they come to the conclusion of 120 years. But one of the things that we see when we study Muslim interpretation of the Quran and the prophetic traditions, people actually, inter and this is not true just of Islam, you see it in other religious traditions as well, people's interpretation is informed by the best knowledge they have at the time. So as people's knowledge and understanding of nature and humanity and life and death, as that understanding changes, we see changes in the way scripture is interpreted where religious texts, whether they're considered to be the words of God or the words of men inspired by God, people interpret them according to whatever their best knowledge and understanding is at the time. Mm -hmm. Do you think that enhancing people in the way that people are trying today, you know, with transhumanism or, you know, simply, I don't know, prosthetic limbs, is this against the will of Allah? Like, is it something that the Quran states not to do? Uh, it's not something the Quran states not to do. Uh, in fact, Muslims, and there, uh, there may be Muslims today who would disagree with that. There is kind of an anti-science movement amongst certain religious people of all religions. We see that today. Uh, Muslims, Christians, Jews, we see all kinds of religions where people see this disconnect between religion and science. That has not historically been the case for Muslims. We see in what is often referred to as the golden era of Islam, where Baghdad was, for example, the center of empire from roughly the 8th through the 12th or into the 13th century, where there was a lot of study and a lot of scientific advancement because Muslims were reading the Quran, which says, ponder the signs of God, right? and the signs of God in nature, and the signs of God in yourselves. And that led to a lot of study. Uh, there are people doing it today. There's also a movement of, you know, trying to read the text in light of science. Uh, in the 1970s, there was a very popular book among Muslims called The Bible, the Quran, and Science, uh, written by a French physician by the name of Maurice Goupil. And he was trying to show, although he was very sectarian. He was trying to show that the Quran is superior to the Bible as a text that has, you know, things in it that indicate scientific knowledge beyond Muhammad's capacity to know. Now, what happens, though, is you can say 
he's reinterpreting these texts based on current understandings of science. And, and that's why I said, when we look at these interpretations, we really see how interpretation is affected by knowledge. But so science has, for some Muslims, taken on a really important position as an interpretive tool, that when they read the text, they read the text in a way that makes it compatible with science as we know it, even if that's a different understanding than people would have had a thousand years ago, because their knowledge of science and nature was different. I think because I think what's always happened is people pit religion against science. But what you're telling me is pretty much it can be compatible depending on interpretation, right? Right. They, they can be, it can be compatible. And there's, there's a, a scholar by the name of Whitney Bauman who has done work on this in Christianity. Uh, and I don't remember his book right now, but uh, he's really good on, he does a lot on ecology and nature and uh, scientific ethics and scientific interpretation. And he points out that in the, in the case of the Bible, when people today are reading a medieval translation of the Bible, and saying the world is only X years old, et cetera, that medieval interpretation was, was based on the way that the people in the Christian religious authorities understood the world, the Ptolemaic mm. universe, right? So when people look at that medieval interpretation and say it's the, inter it's the correct interpretation, they're ignoring the fact that those medieval interpreters we're basing that interpretation on their understanding of the universe at the time. And I think you can say the same thing uh, happens with Islam and other religions as well. So that shifting interpretation based on human understanding. But then today we look at the people a thousand years ago who were writing and say they knew so much more about the religion than we did. They were closer to the time of the original text. And so then those authorities of the past take on uh, a greater stance in interpretation. Whereas those authorities of the past were interpreting based on their understanding. And I think that's part of the tension we see today is the amount of authority we give to previous interpretations. One thing that I have read that hasn't really changed over time, I think you also put it in your book, the chapter of Calvin's book as well, was that we're all destined to die by God or Allah. Right, that right? all, every soul or every self, every nafs, and the nafs is, uh, you know, a, like I said, it means breath, it means soul, it means self, but it's what makes you, you, right? Um, it's what animates the physical body, the breath that animates the physical body, but also what makes you an individual human being. And the Quran says, every soul will taste death. And since you sent me those questions, I've really been thinking about what the word taste means to experience something, but it's briefly, right? Mm -hmm. um, and I have that I'll tell you, I've been doing other things and it was hot yesterday. So I didn't, I was thinking this morning, I really should have gone in to look and see what exigent said about this tasting death, a, a transitory, maybe death is a transitory experience, right? Something your soul goes through as it shifts from this body in this existence to the next, whatever comes after this existence, but that the soul itself goes on. The soul does not die. The self does not die. It tastes death. And that's something that I've not looked into, but I'm going to now. 
Well, uh, to follow up with this, because this is probably the question that Sufal and I have had the most trouble over. Okay, so everything, everyone dies. But what confuses me is that if people can go by their own volition to choose whether to engage in some sort of technology, maybe one that extends their lives, I'm sort of confused how that's compatible with the fact that you're destined to die at a certain point in time. That's like, if that's not chosen by you, but your choice to get life extension is... I don't know. Do you sort of see where my uh, I see is? where you're going. And this is why earlier I said, really, it's important to start thinking about what do we mean by life? You know, what do we mean by death? Uh, what does it mean to experience death? Because if you extend your life, uh, the idea from a classical Muslim perspective is you could not do that forever. At some point, you're going to experience death because that's written for everybody. You're, everybody's going to experience death. Because what Muslims have developed, because the concept of free will has been discussed at a philosophical level in great depth, not only by Muslims. The idea that the free will we have is limited. It's not an absolute free will. It's free will within the framework of what God has determined. So after a certain point, yeah, our free will is limited. And that is the answer that Muslim philosophers have come up with for the last, you know, 14, 1500 years. That we have free will, but it's not an absolute free will. But essentially, there's limitations to how much we can, I guess, have free will or limitations to our free will in general. Right. We, we are limited within the will of God. And the other thing that I think is important in the question of life and death from a Quranic perspective is in chapter 67, verse 2 in the Quran, it, it says, we have created death and life as a test, a test of who is best in action. And it gets to the question, the story of the creation of human beings, right? And, and the fall from the garden, because Adam and Eve, name, the Quran names Adam, the Quran does not name Eve. But the story is very similar between the Bible and the Quran, that they are the two people from whom everyone else comes. They were in the garden, right? And they, they had the opportunity to obey or disobey God. They had the choice. They chose to disobey God. And that brought them and the rest of us here to earth as a testing ground, right? And there's a verse in the Quran, uh, and I'm trying to remember if I discuss it in my book chapter, that says that God brought all of the descendants of Adam together and said, am I not your Lord? And they all said, yes, we bear witness. So that, and the, the verse goes on, so that you will not be able to say, you know, I didn't know. So there is an idea that we, as descendants of Adam, pre-existed this particular life. And we therefore are under this kind of covenant with God. And that, and, and this, this really sets the Islamic view of human life and why we're here. We don't remember that incident. We, we, none of us have a conscious memory of being brought before God all together and say, and bearing witness. And so the Islamic understanding is that this physical life, and the Quran says this very directly, the life of this world is an illusion, right? 
this is not reality. This is a temporary experience. And the Quran says that death and life is a test. So the idea, and I think Christianity shares this to some degree, this idea that we are being tested in this life and that what happens after is the reality. And the idea, the common idea that when we die, it'll be like waking up from a dream. And there are mystics in Islam. I talked about the nafs, the idea of what makes us us. There are, there are mystical traditions in Islam that see that as the ego and see it as something negative. And so the idea of controlling that self so that the higher self, the divine self, which is the spirit of God that was blown into us, is in kind of conflict with that. Uh, that personal ego. So there are different views of, of what this test is, but there is a general idea that this life is a test for us and is not the ultimate reality. Hmm. So I'm just going to jump back a little bit onto this whole idea of enhancements. Is there a line that Islamic biomedical ethics draws in terms of how far we can enhance our own bodies? For example, like, is the line that I can put a prosthetic arm on? Like, at what point should I stop? You know, that's a good question. And I saw that in your, uh, in your questions that you sent me. And I really do not know that Islamic biomedical ethics is any more advanced uh, than any other medical ethics on how far should that go. There mm-hmm. is a verse in the Quran that says, you know, do not alter the creation of God. And, and I did not look at that in this context, but that is the verse that I would look at to really look at what the Arabic says, because I see that Muslims could use that to say we shouldn't do any of that. But then I, I'm a wheelchair user. I have cerebral palsy. I was actually born dead. They told my mother I was dead before I was even delivered. Um, and they wrapped me up. I was three months early, not breathing. They didn't get a heartbeat. This was a long time ago. Today, they might have been de- able to detect things that they couldn't detect back then. But they wrapped me up. I had a death certificate before I had a birth certificate. He was waiting for the doctor to sign while, they was, while he was taking care of my mother. And one of the nurses, it was a Catholic hospital back in the days when the nuns were, the nurses were nuns. And a nun that was the head nurse was a friend of my mother's and had come down to comfort her and saw my foot move and realized I wasn't dead. So, uh, and then they resuscitated me. So, and as a disabled person, I make use of equipment devices that help me function, right? And so it gives me a different perspective than people might have if they have never used them, right? Without, the, without a wheelchair, for example, my life would be much more challenging. And, and I have a friend who has real challenges with speech. She also has cerebral palsy, but it's a different type than mine. So she has to use a communication device, right? If she didn't have that device, she wouldn't be able to, well, she can vocalize, but it's very difficult for her and very difficult for people to understand. A lot of it, a lot of the questions that we ask about medical ethics, we also have to ask, are we asking them from an ableist perspective, right? Because most of the people doing the interpretation of scripture who want to say, well, no, we shouldn't be doing these things are doing it from a perspective where they have nothing other than trying to have superhuman something uh, to, to driving their motivation. And if you look at it from an ableist perspective, that becomes a problem, right? 
for other people, right, like me, I think it has to do with maybe the intentions of the people. And there's a prophetic tradition where Muhammad is quoted as saying actions will be judged by their intentions. And so what is the intention behind what people are doing? And then there's a verse in the Quran that tells Muhammad, we only sent you as a mercy to creation. So what does it mean to be a mercy to creation? So, you know, if you have mercy to creation, then these things that can benefit people are things, thinking about it from a standpoint of benefiting people then becomes a question of mercy. I have to ask this then, because based on your perspective, I think some religions, I don't know about Islam, heavily treat life as being a gift from God and that because uh, earlier you mentioned this was like a testing ground. It's life as we know is not fair for everyone as you told us with your story. So I don't know if there's any reason like some people they, they die in the womb, some die at birth, some as such as yourself cerebral palsy. Is there anything on why the quality of life is so different between individuals and as we were tested to get to you know before we're resurrected once we die? There is the idea that God is not questioned about what he does. And oftentimes we don't know why some people are tested in one way and some people are tested in another. And so there is this idea of it's okay to say we don't know. And, and, and we don't know. That doesn't mean that somebody someday might not find an answer, but it's perfectly okay. And I have, especially having lived as long as I have now, I have no problem with saying, I don't know. Why are people tested with uh, different kinds of difficulties? Why do some people live a long time? Some people don't live very long at all. I do not know. And that is, there are certain things. The idea that Muslims generally have is that when creation comes to an end uh, and we return to God, then we will know the answers to all of this. Uh, but in this life, we don't know. But the idea is we come from God and we return to God and that God will answer all those questions at some point is, is the general understanding that, that Islam, most Muslims have. So if I'm not mistaken, uh, it does say that Allah provides sustenance to all mankind, regardless if they're a believer in, of Islam or not, right? Yeah. So if we were to, it, again, this is a little bit hypothetical, but if we were to live much longer, say 200, 300 years, and problems like overpopulation come into existence, would Allah provide basic needs to everybody that needs it? Like, would Allah still provide this sustenance? Well, the Quran does say God provides sustenance for everyone. And I think when we look around and when I was teaching at Colgate a number of years ago, I had a, a student, a first year student in you know religion in the contemporary world class. And she did a great project on uh, sustenance and how there is plenty in the world. The world produces enough for everybody to have what they need. And it's this inequity of distribution that becomes a problem. And this is where I, as, as somebody who reads the Quran and thinks about the test, I think, you know, there's a test here that people are, you know, people that are keeping needs from other people, because the Quran talks about that in chapter 107, you know, talks about people who deny other people basic needs and, and being a problem. And that may be part of the test that we're having is how do we deal with each other as human beings? Are we that mercy for each other or are we causing problems for each other? And uh, one of the questions that people ask is how does, you know, how is it that God allows people 
to starve? Is it God allowing people to starve or is it other people allowing people to starve, right? Just because God has the power to do something, force every, God could, according to the Quran, force everyone to have faith, force everyone to do the right thing, but God does not. Why not? And this is where free will comes in, right? About how are we going to interact in the world? Are we going to use the technologies and the power and the volition that we have for good ends or negative ends? right? To benefit as many people as possible, or to benefit primarily ourselves and the people that we think are important. And and I think we see this all the time in human society. And and the Quran even says this, if you were in charge of the storehouse of God's mercy, you you wouldn't spend it for fear uh, of spending it, right? Uh, So that you would withhold it for fear of spending it. Now that we talked a lot about, I guess, philosophy and a bit of life, we should acknowledge the other part, which is death. I'm not entirely sure how close Islam and Christianity are in terms of, as far as I'm aware, Christianity has a general resurrection at some point and the concepts of heaven and hell people might be more familiar with. Is this the same, are these the same principles in terms of Islam as well, or are there some differences in terms of resurrection? Islam has a similar concept, except Islam does not have the concept of salvation that you have in Christianity, where Jesus had to sacrifice himself for the salvation of souls. Uh, The Quranic concept, there is a very detailed eschatology in the Quran. The creation that we're in will end. Whether everyone dies before that or not, it's not necessary that everyone die and be buried before that happens. There's an idea that the trumpet will be blown at that instant. And at that instant, anyone who's not dead will die. And then the trumpet will be blown a second time. And then everyone will be raised up. And then there will be a judgment, right? So there is this idea of creation as we know it will come to an end. Then there will be a day of judgment and everyone uh, will be raised up and judged individually based on their record in this life. And then based on their record in this life, they will either go to the garden or to the fire and they will remain in those forever. There is an idea that some people that are not deserving of forever in the fire will be brought out, made whole, and then then brought into the garden. That the hellfire is going to be only for, you know, the most egregious, unrepentant people. It's kind of an idea similar to the Catholic idea of purgatory, where you go, if you're not quite good enough, you get directly into heaven, you go to purgatory where you're cleansed, and then you go on into heaven. There's a similar idea in Islam. Mm-hmm. So I think you may have briefly touched on this in your answer just now, but is like living in an afterlife such as heaven or hell considered to be like an immortal existence? It's considered to be a permanent existence. Yeah, because and the Quran says they will not taste death, death therein except the first death. And I know I deal with that in my chapter. I don't remember exactly how much detail I go into it. So there is an idea that the death that we taste is 
the experience of leaving this particular body and existence and go into the next existence. And in paradise or in the garden, we will not experience that again. One of the questions you had asked about was, you know, what kind of feelings like boredom, et cetera, if people are in the garden forever. And the Quran makes it clear that they're not going to hear any gossip there. They're not going to have any negative feelings. There's even the idea of wine that doesn't get people drunk. So it will be paradise or the garden is described as similar to what we have here, but with only the positive aspects, not any of the negative aspects. Okay, well, this makes me wonder then, because part of being human, at least, is having things like greed and boredom and these negative feelings. So once, let's say I'm resurrected, am I still like human or have I like transcended in some way, which I'm not exactly the same. That's a good question. Again, we talk about, you know, what does it mean to be human? Because when you think about the self, the, the naf, and I'm thinking of when I say the word self, I'm thinking of the Arabic word nafs. And what the Quran says about the nafs, right? The nafs continues on. The body dies. When we kill someone and killing is prohibited, what's happening at death is the separation of the nefs from the physical body. And it's interesting because the Quran says that God takes the nefs in two instances, at the time of death and when we're asleep. And those for whom death is not written, God returns the nefs. For a, term, for a specified term. Death and sleep are similar, but God does not keep the nafs if death is not decreed for us. So then we wake up, right? But death is the point at which the nafs is permanently separated from the body. And so when the, when the Quran prohibits killing, which it does very explicitly, we are not allowed to do that to somebody else. It's not up to us to decide when the nafs is permanently separated from the body. That God alone is, is allowed to decide. That's only up to God. But that's God taking the soul back to himself or herself or itself. The, the, the Arabic deity is non-gendered. The Arabic word Allah is a masculine noun and all nouns in Arabic are gendered. So they use he or there's no it in Arabic. So everything like a book is he and a table is she, right? So when God uses he in the Quran, it's because the word Allah is a masculine noun, but that does not mean God is gendered. Gender is part of the physical creation. And it is not a word that people are comfortable using about God because it in English means a non-sentient being usually. I, I want to say God is not masculine, although the pronoun he is used. But God is taking the soul back at the time of death and, and during sleep. And God returns the soul for those for whom death is not decreed. Just as a quick follow-up to that before I ask my next question. So in a scenario where somebody, it's not a killing or somebody's not asleep before they pass away, such as a car accident, for example, is that still God taking the nafs away? God is then going to keep the nafs if their death is decreed at that time. And this is how Muslims mm. understand like miraculously surviving, right? Somebody's in a terrible accident and they should not have survived. Oh my God, how did they survive? Their time was not decreed. 
because the Quran does also say explicitly that there is a specified time. And, you know, and for some people, the specified time is very short. And for some people, the specified time may be very long. But the idea is that God's not going to keep your soul until the specified time. Also, uh, I know you've done a lot of readings on, you know, uh, I guess, older texts versus newer texts. So is there any like differences in how resurrection itself is perceived in, I guess, older translations or iterations of Islamic texts versus newer ones? Well, the, the one person I think of in that regard is someone that I do mention in my article. His name is Parvez, uh, Ghulam Ahmed Parvez, who was a thinker in the Indian subcontinent in the first half of the 20th century. And his idea is that, for example, heaven and hell are not localities. They're psychological states of being. So there are people in the modern period. Now, this is not necessarily accepted by mainstream theologians uh, in Islam, but there are thinkers that are thinking along that, that way, that the here and the hereafter are not kind of mythical in the sense of religion. Like myth doesn't necessarily mean false, okay? Uh, in, in the popular me- meaning, mythology means false, but in this, the academic meaning, Myth is a story that's used to explain something that cannot be understood. And a myth may end up being true or being false. You know, we don't know. But the idea that heaven and hell are places that exist outside of our experience, you know, and that the the resurrection and judgment is a time yet to come in the future is the standard understanding in Islam like it is in Christianity. That does not mean there are not thinkers today. And I don't know if there were thinkers of the past who might have shared that idea. One of the things that we do with texts of the past is kind of selective reading. And the texts that people transmit and discuss are the texts that have become mainstream and support the more mainstream ideas. You know, and there may be manuscripts languishing somewhere that nobody's looked at where people had that idea. I'm not convinced that people of the past were less smart than we are, although we might like to think so. But so I don't know that there were not people of the past who thought that way, but there are certainly people who are taking it in a more metaphorical sense. Uh, And Parvez is the modern example of that, although his ideas are not considered mainstream. I had a, a two-part question. I'll, I'll try to word it. Like, I'm not sure what good life extension would offer to Muslims in terms of, like, if your life or your point of death is already predetermined. I'm just trying to think, is there any benefit really to extending your life when you're all going to be resurrected anyways? Like, what good is another 50 years, right? The answer that most Muslims would have is you're going to be able to extend your life as long as God is going to allow it. Again, like someone miraculously surviving a car accident and people say, oh, my God, they should not have survived. Well, they survived because it's not their time. And so if you extend your life another 50 years, 100 years, 1000 years, then that was meant to be right. And if it's not meant to be, it won't happen. And that would, I think, be the standard Muslim response. Because you can't kill yourself. I mean, you can, you're physically capable of killing yourself. But that is considered a sin, right? That's considered that if you kill yourself, then you're going, the the standard understanding for Muslims is that that you are going to go to hell for that because you chose to end your own life. 
Right. So as far as I know, there's two major divisions uh, in terms of the Sunni Muslims and the, the Shia. And then there's also many others. Like, I don't know the quite which are subdivisions of which, but like Salafis, uh, Sufis. Uh, my, my question is pretty much how different would be would the acceptance of life extension or other forms of technology that affect your health and your life? What would be the difference in terms of acceptance across all the different sects? Uh, I think most of the different sects of Islam have a similar idea about death and resurrection. The Sufis will have a more, you know, mystical understanding of what goes on in this life and and the nafs as ego rather than the nafs as just self. But that's not going to affect their view of extending life. Again, the idea is going to be probably shared by all of them. I don't, I can't think of any sects that would say that you're going to be able to extend it beyond what God would allow anyway. And that if you extend it, that's because God allowed you to, that God meant you to live that long anyway. Um, and, and the technology allowed you to do that. The idea that God is the one in ultimate control, even of the technology, I think is an idea that would be shared uh, across the sect. Because the sectarian divisions are not about the kind of basic idea of God being in charge. The sectarian divisions, especially the Sunni Shia division, has to do with who led the who's the right who has the right to lead the community right. after the death of Muhammad, right? Who should be in charge of the community on earth is is the biggest driver of of the main sectarian division between the Sunnis and the Shi'is, which is much more about politics and society and who's in charge of the community. So we've heard that Islam promotes life being a gift and that it shouldn't be wasted. So how important is it that life continues the exact same way that, you know, it was given to us at birth? Again, I feel like we've touched on this idea before, but other ideas such as, say, we mind upload, where our mind is put onto the internet or a copy of us is put onto the internet. Is that something that is good? Is that something that's looked or frowned upon? That's a fascinating question and what is the mind this gets into the question of what is the mind what is the what makes us us if our nafs because again i i would think uh and, and i was i was kind of thinking about this that gets into the question of what is the nafs if your nafs okay my nafs is in this physical body currently right if the if my nafs leaves this physical body and goes into another medium right that, which is what the whole thing of death is, right? You leave this body and then you go into whatever happens after, but the nafs is there. That, that consciousness, that consciousness of what makes you you, is that the nafs? And I don't know if anybody who's actually philosophically looking at that question in you know religious theological circles, it's a really great question now. And, and I've been trying to think of where I would even look to figure that out, you know, uh, from the standpoint of the kind of texts that I look at, because the word nafs appears hundreds of times in the Quran, more than 300 times. And I have been looking at the word nafs in the Quran, uh, not for this purpose, uh, but for other purposes. And I find it a very daunting task to really, you know, because this is a text that I do consider the word of God. So I want to be careful what I say about it uh, and, and what I draw from it. 
Um, and I really don't know anyone studying that. But given that the nefs goes on after it leaves this physical body, is there anything that prevents it being in another medium? Um, I don't know. If God, if God allows us to create a medium into which we could put a nef, should we? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> So wait, is it, would it be right to say that you would be a dualist then if you believe in the nafs and your physical substrate as being separate? The physical body is separate from the nafs. It's the nafs being in the physical body that animates it, right? That's the mm -hmm. thing. Dualism in creation is, is, is not a problem for Islam. Dualism related to God is a problem because God is one. Creation doesn't have that. It's not a problem to say physical and spiritual. And that's really common in most religions. I mean, Jains who have believe in the, the, the life force and the physical body, uh, Christianity, the life force and the physical body, the creation from clay, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, that's the physical body. It's the nafs. And even in Hebrew, that word nafs is that breath that animates life. Uh, the Quran distinguishes between ruh, which is also breath, but that's the breath of God, and nafs is, is the, the breath of humans. And that's how Sufis get this. There's a divine self and, a, and an ego, a kind of lower self. But, but that nafs is, is the self that makes us who we are. And the question of if God allowed us to have some other medium in which that nafs could continue to exist because the nafs will continue to exist outside of this body. Mm -hmm. The question is, are, is it going to exist on the internet? Who knows? <laughs> right. Is there a technology yeah. that, that, that we can do that with? I mean, people are working on it, right? Does it, artificial intelligence ever become nafs? Oh, oh my goodness. <laughs> Great question. Sounds like a Netflix show. <laughs> We're almost near the end. We have a few more questions. Um, one question I wanted to ask is, how exactly has Islam and Muslim religion kind of perceived new technologies, whether it be medical or not? And the reason I'm asking it is, for example, say tomorrow, by s some chance, a new pill is invented that adds 30, 40 years to our lives. How rejected or accepted would it be? I think that would really depend on the individuals you're talking to. And, and it happens in all religions, this question of biomedical ethics. There will be people who will say, we shouldn't do that. God doesn't want us to do that. Um, and there will be other people who would say, wow, God has given us this great opportunity to do something new. And, and I think you'd find that same divide uh, among Muslims as you would in any other religion. People like myself who tend to be relatively open-minded, although I'm I do, I am very textually focused, you know, governing documents, not just in Islam, but, you know, but I, I also read the text and say, what is it saying? And is there a different way to understand it? Right? So what is God saying to us and how does it apply in this instance? And that Muslims have been doing, uh, you know, since the beginning, uh, and I think we'll continue to do. And they'll continue to wrestle with these questions. And, and all of these are great questions and, and that people will continue to wrestle with, have been wrestling with for the entirety you know, of the time since the life of Muhammad uh, and continue to wrestle with today. And again, that's not unique to Islam. These are questions that humans wrestle with. 
one last question, unless you have any more you want to follow up with Sufal uh, for today, which I believe is probably the least philosophical, lifey, deathy, what does life mean kind of question. And I think you touched on uh, touched on it on your, in your chapter in Calvin's book, which was about the pilgrimages, such as, correct me if my, on my pronunciation, Haji, Haj, yeah. and also, and paying zakat, how these sort of traditional pilgrimages and rituals would change if we have so many more people who are living so much longer. Um, yeah, what, what was your take on that? I'm trying to remember what I said in the chapter. Really, I think there wouldn't be particularly huge changes, except maybe in numbers of people, because what Saudi Arabia has had is a problem with huge crowds of people, so many people trying to go all at once. So then people begin to say, well, maybe, you know, if you do it at other times, because there are dispensations that will allow you not all to do it at once. So maybe the idea of overcrowding for Hajj might be a problem. But things like Salah, the prayer that people do daily, that's an individual thing that you would just continue to do during your life. Zakah, which is alms or required charity, again, is an individual thing and you give to the needy. So, you know, if there are a lot more needy people, then there's more people to, to give to, or, you know, you need more resources to give. But those kind of things, those, those pillars of practice, because they tend to be primarily personal, right? Although the only one that is absolutely personal that nobody knows you're doing unless you tell them is fasting, right? If you're praying, people may see you praying. So it's, you know, it's not 100% personal. If you're giving charity, the receiver at least knows that you're giving it. But fasting is entirely personal. So Hajj is the one where overcrowding is today a problem even without life extension. All right. So I think we're near the end of our podcast. And as a wrap up question, we'd like to ask is if there's one thing you want the audience to take away from today's conversation, what would it be? Is that Muslims are not monolithic in their understanding. I've given you my understanding, which is, you know, based on years of study and experience, but it's still my understanding and that everyone should really seek uh, their own best understanding and that we should all be willing to grapple with these kind of ethical questions throughout our lives and all be willing to admit that we don't know things, but that we're willing to learn them and willing to explore them. And for people who are interested in your work or maybe even want to support it, are there any websites they can go to to see all your things? Yeah, they can go to, to my website, which is D-R-A-Y-M-U-S-A-Dreymusa.com. And my articles and book chapters are there. And so you're you're welcome to go to my site and, and read my stuff. I am working on developing some online courses that I plan to market a little bit later this year. One on the life of Muhammad, uh, which is the one that I'm working on currently, uh, and then one on Quranic interpretations. So stay tuned for those. Okay, great. Well, all you guys listening, these links will be in our description below. Uh, once again, thank you, Aisha, for uh, being on I'm Immortal, your source for all things immortal. We really appreciate you coming on to speak with us today. Well, thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure.